0: Our passage this morning comes from two uh, places in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 2 Peter chapter 1. And the sermon is entitled, Rest to Remember. And Pastor Bill will be preaching the word for us. Let me read this for us. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins.
1: Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we are continuing our teaching series this morning on rest. We're picking back up on considering the Sabbath command, the fourth commandment that we started looking at last Sunday, the command to rest one day um, after working six. And we're doing that not simply because we had scheduled it for this morning. We did that, but we're also looking at it because oddly enough, in light of the events of this past week, what we're looking at in the Sabbath command is even more timely and relevant to us and to our nation as we continue processing the events that took place Wednesday at the Capitol building. Let me explain what I mean by that. There is a great myth in the Western world, stubbornly enduring myth. It's a myth for which there is no evidence whatsoever and lots of evidence against, but a myth that is believed with fierce tenacity. Fierce tenacity, despite the lack of evidence. It's the myth that people are basically good. It's a stubborn myth that our nature as human beings is fundamentally good that down below the surface the vast majority of the human race is really pretty decent not only are we basically good but that humanity as a whole is progressing that we're becoming better and better over time more and more moral more and more civilized it's a myth that's widely believed and because it's widely believed the events of wednesday come as a real shock and surprise We flail around for words. We're trying to express what we're feeling. We top each other over and over and over. We still don't feel like we're really able to able to capture what we really feel. We lack the mental categories to process what's going on. Now, I want to walk a very careful line this morning. I do not condone what took place at our Capitol. The interruption of the next step of the process of peacefully transferring power from one elected official to another. I don't condone that. I don't condone the people who participated in it. As I wrote to all of you, and if you didn't get that letter, you can request one. Just go to RenewalMainline.org, click on the contact link. We'll be happy to send that to you. But as I wrote to all of you, we should be appalled at what took place. But we should not be surprised that it could take place. Do you hear this, the distinction that I'm making here? the line that I'm trying to walk today, I don't believe the Western myth. I don't believe that we're basically good. I do believe that humanity has the capability to do what people did on Wednesday. I believe that we have that capacity inside of us. And in that sense, the events of Wednesday do not surprise me. We don't always act out the worst that is inside of us. We don't act on the capacity that we have. But humanity carries the ability for that kind of evil inside of us. It's a very important distinction. You can be shocked at what people did, but you should not be surprised that people are capable of doing what they did. We're not basically good. And yet we think we are. And so people are surprised. Lots of people are surprised. Scroll through your newsfeed, scroll through your social media, people are surprised. That's the mild version of what people are. People are surprised, but the church should not be. Our theology says what? It took the death of the Son of God, the death of the most beautiful, the most compassionate, the most caring, the most just, the most self-sacrificing person that this world has ever known, it took his death to save you and me from death. That's what we believe. We believe that evil is so bad that God himself had to go to that extreme in order to free you and me from the power of evil. That there was no other way. That means that you and I are responsible for Christ dying. We're responsible for the death of Christ. In a very real way, you and I killed Christ. That's what we say we believe. It's what we confess. But that confession comes with implications because if you and I are responsible for that atrocity, the atrocity of the cross, then brothers and sisters, friends, we are capable Of far less than that and were capable of anything less than that. On Wednesday people did far less. I am not making light of what they did. I am not condoning it, not trying to brush it off. I'm setting it in a larger context. They did less than kill the Son of God. They were not as bad as they could have been but they did much much more than be basically good. I'm not surprised you should be appalled but not surprised Evil's a very real thing down below all of the secondary reasons for why people do what they do is a fundamental bentness that embraces all of those secondary reasons it makes a home for those secondary reasons makes a place for those secondary reasons to flourish to be embraced that's why we talk about evil in some way every single week it's very real and it's not isolated to a handful of individuals. Evil does not belong to just one political party. Evil does not have a skin color that it's more partial to. It does not prefer or prejudice one gender above the other. It doesn't inhabit one socioeconomic bracket more than it does any other. Evil transcends all of those differences. There's a commonality among all of us, because evil goes below all those differences. It lives in the heart of every human being. Those who disrupted our political process have evil, as well as you and me. We are all capable of so much worse. And my fear this morning, as I say this, is that some of you are upset right now. Some of you are saying, I am not like that. You had these pictures, these mental images in your mind of people storming the Capitol, and you're thinking, I would never do that. I'm better than that. And in the moment that you feel that way, what are you proving? You're proving how stubborn the Western myth really is. Each one of us believes what? That we're basically pretty decent people. Yeah, sure, we do some things that we're not proud of, but we would never do something like that. We don't functionally believe that we have the capability, the capacity for that kind of evil. And so on Sunday, we gladly sing about how Jesus died for our sins, that we're responsible for that evil, sure, but that one feels distant, it feels safe, we can cop to that. But this evil, not this one. Do you hear us? We struggle to admit that we have this capacity, this ability, the ability of Wednesday afternoon inside of us. And if that's some of where you are this morning, then you and I are friends. Because deep down, I struggle to believe that. Let me confess to you, for all of my orthodox, biblical, theological beliefs, there is still something inside of me that rises up and says, I'm better than that. But I have lived long enough to know that my belief in my own moral superiority simply shows I'm naive, naive and arrogant, naive to my own evil, arrogant about how good I am, arrogant without any real cause. All I have to do is think for a few moments about times where I've fallen flat on my face, times when I've gone along with the crowd even though I knew I really should not. Or times where I've crossed lines because it made me feel stronger, made me feel like I was in control to do so. Or times where I've longed for someone else's approval so badly, I compromised. I violated my own conscience. I have that whole track record. And yet foolishly, I still believe that there are some things I would not do. I'm really naive and arrogant to believe that I am not capable of doing more given everything that I've already done, proven that I can do. A 19th century Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, much more humble man. He was much more humble when he wrote, quote, I am tempted to think that there are some sins for which I have no natural taste, such as strong drink, profane language, etc., so that I need not fear temptation to such sins. This is a lie, a proud, presumptuous lie the seeds of all sins are in my heart and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them, unquote. And that's my concern this morning, that the seeds are there in me, that all they need are the right conditions, the right incentives to sprout. And yet I'm tempted to believe the proud presumptuous lie that it is just not possible for them to do so. I don't think I'm the only one who struggles like that. So what do you do if you and I are friends this morning? What do we do if we're struggling to believe the biblical teaching that humanity is depraved? Not that you and I are as bad as we could be, but that we are capable of great evil. What's the antidote? If we've bought into the Western myth of our goodness over and against the evidence of our depravity, the antidote is Sabbath. I know that sounds really odd to say it that way. Specifically, the antidote is a Sabbath activity. It's an activity that is essential for you if you're going to grow in your faith. Without this activity, you will remain spiritually immature. And without this activity, you won't know how to handle the evil that you find in yourself or the evil that you see in people or that you experience from them. Now, what do you need to do? Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, you shall remember, and that's the critical word for today, remember. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, if you were with us last week, you might be thinking, that sounds a little different from what we studied in Exodus, and it is. In Exodus, the reason that we keep the Sabbath day holy is because of something that took place in creation. God rested, and when he rested, he took one day and set it aside as something special. Here in Deuteronomy, however, the reason is not based in creation. It's based in redemption. In other words, there's a two-fold argument for keeping the Sabbath. The one from last week acknowledges God the Creator, the one that we'll talk about today, acknowledges God the Redeemer, God the Rescuer, God the Savior. And it's because God has saved and rescued you that you are now to take one day to rest for a very specific purpose. You're not just gonna sit around and be idle. You are to rest in order to remember. And we're gonna look at this remembering from three different perspectives. First, what is it that we are to remember? Second, why do we spend time remembering? And third, how does remembering help us? What do we remember? Why do we remember? And how does it help us? First, what do we remember? Two things. One, that you were a slave in Egypt. And two, that the Lord your God brought you out from there. We'll take them one at a time. First, you were a slave in Egypt. This command takes us back to the time when the Israelites had lived in Egypt for about 400 years. One of their forefathers, Joseph, had saved Egypt from a terrible famine and so the Egyptians had welcomed the Israelites to come and live among them. But later on the Egyptians forgot about Joseph and they forgot what he had done for them and they became afraid of the Israelites, there were so many of them, and they were afraid that the Israel might make an alliance with Egypt's enemies and overthrow them. And so the Egyptians decided, we're going to enslave the Israelites. They used them as forced labor for all their building projects. They beat the Israelites when the Israelites could not meet their impossible demands, and they ripped their children away from them and killed them. For the Israelites, Egypt became a land of oppression, a land of fear, a land of death, a land where no one heard their suffering. Or if they did, it was a land where no one cared. And Moses tells the Israelites here in Deuteronomy to remember that time, Remember that that was your reality, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, that it was crushing, degrading, deadly. Remember what that was like, which if you think about, it's a little odd. If you do a timeline here, Deuteronomy is essentially a very long sermon that Moses gives shortly before his death. And that means that he's not talking to people who had personally lived in Egypt, Actually, most of those people had all died off by this time and so Moses is actually talking to those people's children and their grandchildren. So why does he say, remember that you were a slave in Egypt when a number of them hadn't even been born in Egypt? It's because this story of the Israelites in Egypt becomes the paradigmatic way that you understand who you are and who God is. This is how Scripture works. God often helps you understand the spiritual world, the world that you cannot see, by first pointing to something in the physical world that you can see and showing how that physical world tells you something about the spiritual one. And so scripture then will return to this theme of being a slave in Egypt in order to help you understand the nature of your spirituality. That after sin enters the world, you are born with a bentness that keeps you from wanting to be like God. It's not who you were made to be. The story of creation teaches that you are an image of God, that you are like him, that you were made to like what he likes and to live a life like God lives. That sets the trajectory of understanding your dignity, your worth, your value as a human being. But after sin enters the picture, there's another trajectory, one that moves away from the glory that God intended for you. And so now you're no longer like him in a very fundamental way. You are now a broken image. And scripture teaches that you cannot fix yourself, that you've been born into a spiritual slavery from which you cannot free yourself. You've been born into sin. Now it might be helpful here just to take a brief pause and realize that scripture will talk about sin in two very different but very important ways. One of those ways will talk about sin as a goal, something that you are oriented to, something that you are pursuing, something that you want, something that you feel like you have to have, and something so that you are moving toward it. But Scripture also talks about sin as something that enslaves you, something that owns you, that forces you to do things, compels you, gives you no other option. It's that sense that people have when they talk about addiction, that sense of being enslaved by work, sex, alcohol, respect, approval, shopping, studies, food, social media, whatever. That feeling of not being able to stop thinking about something, of feeling like you don't have any choice, like you can't say no, like there's no way to be free from it. And I hope you've had that experience the experience of realizing that you have entered into this world with something else owning your heart, owning you so much that you can't change you, not even when you want to. I know a guy. He was a pretty decent person all through elementary school, all through junior high, got good grades, did what his parents told him to do, was pretty decent to other people. And so even though he went to church, really didn't feel much connection with God because he didn't really feel much need of God. He's a really good guy, said and did all of the right things, and yet had a heart that was far from the Lord. Until the Lord did something for him, the Lord dropped someone into his world that this person thought was just obnoxious, another person about his age, and my friend struggled. Found that he just could not make himself like this guy. Worse, he couldn't even be decent to him, could hardly tolerate being around him, couldn't be nice, and he discovered this over a period of time, and he saw that about himself, and he didn't like it thought he was better than that. And it was this experience that started to turn his heart to the Lord. That experience of coming up against something, even something that is this small, at this trivial level, but something inside of him that he found he couldn't control, that he didn't have ownership over. Something that he didn't like, but that he couldn't stop. Something that he started to realize he needed to be rescued from. And that opened up an understanding for him of what sin really is, of what the nature of sin is, and of how much he really needed someone to save him from that. It's that kind of experience that takes the theory about the sin nature and makes it come alive, makes it real. So real that you start to move toward God and ask him for help because you realize you don't own the key to your own heart. Instead, sin does. Now, if you haven't had that experience yet, ask the Lord to show you where it's true of you. This is one of the prayers that the Lord absolutely will answer because it's something that you need to see about yourself. Or if you have had that experience of seeing your helplessness in the face of sin and yet you're still struggling to believe that you are as enslaved by sin as someone else, ask the Lord to help you see that. Brothers and sisters, we need to have sin be more than a theoretical category something that we just sort of toss around on Sunday morning. It needs to work its way into our minds so that it forms the way that we functionally think about ourselves and the way that we think about the rest of the world. The awareness that we're born into this world, enslaved by sin, that's the starting point for our spiritual reality. And God tells you that a very important spiritual exercise is to take time to remember that that's been true of you. But he also tells you to remember what he's done in light of who you are. That verse 15, The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When no one cared about the Israelites enslaved by Egypt, God did. He had earlier promised Abraham that he would not forget his descendants, the Israelites, that he would give them the land that he had promised to Abraham. And God remembered his promise. And so he struck Egypt with plagues that proved that he was more powerful than any of their gods. He brought his people out of slavery by defeating the most powerful nation and the most powerful army that there was on the earth at that time. He set them free simply because he loved them. And that becomes the pattern of salvation then that runs throughout the rest of the scripture until it finds its fulfillment in Christ's death and his resurrection. This pattern that God rescues you, that he liberates you from the sin that enslaves you, that he frees you when nothing else can. He saves you when you cannot save you from yourself, when you can do nothing for yourself, when you have nothing to offer him. And he does that to bring you into a new experience of life. It's all dependent on his kindness to you, not on anything that you've done. And so you take time to remember You take time to think it really is by grace that I've been saved. It is not by education that I've been saved, not by reading the right books, not by listening to the right people, not by going to the right counselor, not by being in the right circles or doing the right things. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that I've been saved. And this is not from myself. It's the gift of God. You spend time remembering what is true of you and what is true of God until those truths move from the background of your mind to the front of your mind. That's point number one. That's what we remember. Secondly, why do we do so? What's the point of remembering? Now, here's where you have to understand that the Hebrew word for remember is more than simply a cognitive exercise. This kind of remembering is not like you're studying for a history test on ancient Israel. You're not reviewing facts and figures, people and places, dates and times, so that you can regurgitate them. It's not what you're doing. Instead, this kind of remembering means that you remember the past in such a way that it starts to affect you in the present. You spend time remembering so that the themes of Scripture are not simply in the front of your mind, but they start to percolate down into your heart. They start to impact the way that you live in life. start to affect how you feel about yourself, how you feel about others, how you act toward others, how you feel and act toward God. You recall the helplessness of being trapped in sin, unable to help yourself, until you become aware again of how little power you really have. And you recall the kindness of God to step in and rescue you from that until you start to appreciate him for all that he's done. You review the past until you re-experience him saving you. It's a little bit like when you tell your testimony of coming to Christ to somebody else. And as you are recalling this testimony, the impact of who you were and where you came from hits you all over again. You ever had that experience? You share what Jesus has done for you and you think, man, I was really messed up i really did need help i forgot that i forgot what that felt like i forgot how much i hated that i forgot how much i wanted to be free of that and i forgot how much god really did to help me i forgot that if he hadn't i'd still be messed up just just thinking about this does what it it makes me thankful one more time for all that he's done for me see these two things slip away so easily don't they We forget how powerless we were, and we forget how much God loves us, how much God has done for us. And if we don't spend time remembering, we end up thinking too highly of ourselves, too highly of our own goodness, and we think too little of God and too little of his goodness. And when that happens, we lose passion for God. We take him for granted. So how do you get that passion back? You set aside time on a weekly basis, you Sabbath, to think about these things, to recall, to remember that you have never been a match for the evil inside of you, and to remember that God's fundamental attitude toward you in light of your inability is to care for you, to care about how helpless you are, to do something about it, to rescue you from yourself when you could do nothing for yourself. This kind of remembering is really important. It's actually far too weak a way to say that. This kind of remembering is essential because it's the engine of spiritual growth. This is the primary way that we grow in our faith. That's what the passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 says that Pastor Luke read to us earlier. Now I'm going to go through it very quickly, so I want to urge you to take time to look at it later today when you get a chance. This is a passage that talks about the Christian life, and it talks about how to grow as a Christian. Very important passage for your own spiritual journey. Now, if you have a copy of the scripture in front of you, you can see there verses 3 and 4. Those verses are about God bringing you into a new life of godliness, a life that lets you be like him again. It's the restoration of you made in his image. And because he's done that, verses 3 to 4, Peter urges you in verses 5 to 8, to grow, to to become more and more like him. Let me read those to you. Verse 5, For this very reason, now that you have a new nature like God's, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, to add to your faith, to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's think about what those things are. What are virtue? knowledge self-control steadfastness godliness brotherly affection and love those are character traits character traits that in other parts of scripture we would talk about as the fruit of the spirit so peter is saying now that you've been given a new life now that the spirit lives inside of you grow up in that life grow in the fruit of the spirit add all of these things to your life and keep increasing in them keep growing in this new life that's how you'll keep from being ineffective and unfruitful, unproductive as a Christian. That's the positive. How do you grow as a Christian? Then he says something sobering. Let's start again, verse 8, for context. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you are being sanctified, if they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now think about that. Whoever lacks these qualities, whoever is not growing as a Christian, whoever lacks these qualities is basically blind. They're unable to see clearly. That's a pretty strong indictment. But why is that? Why are they blind? Why are they lacking these qualities? Why aren't they growing? It's because they have forgotten that they've been cleansed from their former sins. Their former sins when they first came to Christ, their former sins of yesterday, of a few moments ago. They've forgotten. They've stopped remembering. They've stopped remembering what it was like to be enslaved by sin. They've stopped remembering that the, the hold that sin had on them. They've stopped remembering that God cleansed them. And once they've forgotten, once they think it's no longer important to remember how the gospel has touched them personally, they've stopped growing. They've become ineffective in this new life. They've become unfruitful, unproductive. That's why God gave you the Sabbath, It's not a cruel taskmaster like the Egyptians. Not someone who demands that you slave away 24-7. Instead, he gives you a day off to rest from work. But it's not a day to sit around being idle. It's a day to rest with purpose. It's so that you can remember, so that you can grow in your faith. That's what we remember. It's why we remember it. But now, point three, how will remembering help? And I could imagine someone saying, okay, I see what and why, but given what's going on all around us in our nation, doesn't this seem like way too little, given what we're up against? It doesn't seem very productive. It doesn't seem very world-changing. That's when you have to go back and take a closer look at 2 Peter. I know we went through it really fast. So let's think about those character traits again. Virtue. Knowledge self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Think about them and you discover what? They're all relational traits. They have a relational component. You are the one who's changed, but the way that you are changed now impacts the people around you. Take virtue, for instance. It's all about you having high moral standards with respect to how you treat other people. So as your virtue grows, as your morality increases, you treat people more like God treats them. Don't you think that's going to have a significant impact on the people around you? A significant impact as you grow in virtue. Or take knowledge. Here it's a sense of having understanding, of not blundering around the world uh, in the world, thinking and believing things that aren't true, and then spreading those untruths to other people. Instead, you see the world more like God sees it. You live more closely in line with the way that the world is. Don't you think that will be better for the people around you if you're interacting with them on the basis of knowledge, truth, instead of on the basis of ignorance? Ignorance that just keeps the world cloudy for everybody. Keep working your way through the list. What will happen is you're more self-controlled toward other people. That might not change the world, but it will change the world of the people around you their world will be a whole lot better if you're more self-controlled or as you're more steadfast, more reliable, more steady, you'll bring stability to the people around you. That's something that we all long for. Or as you're more godly, the people around you will experience less hurt. The more brotherly affection that you have towards others, the more secure they'll feel around you, the more that they'll know that you like them and that'll allow them to relax, to not have their guard up around you. The more you grow in love, Loving others the way that God has loved you, the more you will change the world. See, this kind of remembering, Sabbath remembering, is extremely practical. It really does change the world because in changing you, it changes how you impact the world around you. And if you're still not convinced, let me urge you, go ask the people that you live with. Ask them if they would prefer that you grow in virtue in the way that you treat them. Ask them if they would like you to grow in knowledge in the way that you interact with them, that you become more self-controlled, that you would be someone who is more steadfast, more reliable, that you are more godly, that you're more affectionate, that you're more loving. Ask them if they'd rather have you treat them more like God does. Ask them if they think that that would really make a significant difference in their world. Or ask them if they don't think that's really all that big a deal. Think about that for a moment. You realize you don't have to ask them. You already know the answer. I know my family would prefer that I do much more remembering than I do forgetting. Let's think about a couple other things that this kind of remembering produces. First, it produces humility in you. It reminds you of your need. And it helps you not think too highly of yourself, not in a way that condescends to everybody around you. It's a good thing for you personally. It gives you more of a sense of who you are. It's good for the people around you. The world benefits as you and I become more humble. Second, remembering produces joy in you. You become more aware of God's passion for you, of how much he wants you, of how much he's paid to have you. And you start to trust that love and to accept it and to embrace it more than you already have that will change your attitude you start to realize you've been given a gift that is so great that if everything else that you have in the world was taken away from you which is something that can happen in this world but if everything else is taken away this can't be you are rich beyond imagining right now and you have a guaranteed future re-experience that and it will change how you feel inside it will change the way your face looks. It will change the way you approach other people, the way that you engage them. Third, remembering produces equity in you, a sense of fairness, of impartiality. It helps you realize that if your need is so great, then other people's need has to be that great as well. And you start to see other people as fellow strugglers, not as enemies. People who, like you, if God does not rescue, cannot rescue themselves. And fourth, that realization produces charity in you. You start to have compassion for other people, even when they're very different from you. Not a compassion that winks at what they do and says, oh, it's not that big a deal. But a compassion that recognizes how deeply enslaved they are. And you start to wish that they could be helped like you've been helped that God would free them from what controls them, like he's freed you from what controls you. And fifth, remembering produces hope. Hope in two directions. First, hope for yourself. That if God has done this much already to bring you to himself, regardless of how desperate you were, you know he's absolutely going to finish what he started. He's not going to bail out on you now. You will grow to be increasingly like him to enjoy him, to be with him forever, produces hope for yourself. It produces hope for other people. Because when you get on board with how good you're not, you start to think, man, if God can rescue me with how messed up I am, there's hope for everybody. Surely he can rescue anyone. No one is too great a challenge for him. I have no reason to be hopeless today. Do you start to see? Remembering is not a weak activity. It's life-changing. Remember, and it will free you from fear as you look around this world. Remember, and it will free you from responding, reacting to everyone else's reactions. Remember, and it will turn you into an agent of change. It will set you loose. An agent who increasingly reflects God and his desires to the people around you. Take the time to remember today, to remember what was true of you and to remember who you are now because of what God has done. Remember until the gospel comes alive for you, maybe in ways that it hasn't lately. Remember so that you then move toward others with joy and hope. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you're the one who moved toward us first. You moved toward us because you saw us in our condition, you saw what we needed, and you had compassion on us. Lord, you did not give us a test first to see if we were worthy or if we believed the right stuff or if we were the good kind of people. You came to us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for those who do not yet know you, that we would be willing to set aside time today to reflect on who we are, to reflect on who you are as you engage who we are Lord that you would set our hearts free that we would be those images of God those reflections of Christ as we walk on this earth for the rest of the day as we go to work and school tomorrow and I pray this in Jesus name Amen